0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, The Key of Biennial, a project capturing the sounds of migration, and Gem Pirakini's London Underground mural. first Kiev biennial since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year is taking place in various locations across the war-torn country, as well as a host of neighbouring countries. I talked to its co-curator Georg Schulhammer about this year's event. As refugees and displaced people continue to dominate the news, a global sound art project, Migration Sounds, aims to explore and reimagine the sounds of human migration and settlement. I speak to Stuart Folks, the founder of Cities and Memory, who's conceived the project with the University of Oxford's Centre on Migration, Policy and Society, or COMPASS. And this episode's Work of the Week is Rebirth of a Nation, a mural made for the Brixton Underground Station in London by the Ethiopian-Italian artist Gem Perrucchini, which is unveiled next week. Jessica Vaughan, the senior curator of Art on the Underground, tells us about the commission. On theartnewspaper.com you can access our new subscription offer. You can get a subscription to The Art Newspaper with full digital access for £1, $1 or €1 for three months. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, this year's Kiev Biennial was only confirmed a few months ago after much uncertainty following the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year. And while Vienna is its main hub, there are presentations in Lublin, Warsaw, Berlin and in Ukraine itself with exhibitions and events staged in Kiev, Ivano-Frankisk and Uzgorod. And one of the three lead curators on the project, Georg Schörlhammer, told me more. Georg, I noticed that the... Biennial is being billed as a European event. This seems to me to be really important, both in terms of Ukrainian identity, but also to the sort of history of the Biennial in general.
1: Yes, when we started the Biennial in 2015, it was already in a state of crisis because of Crimea was occupied at that time. The Maidan revolution was over. And so we then already thought about making it an international event. So we made it big in Kiev, but we already then thought that the integration of the Kiev artistic scene, in the Kiev cultural field must be a European integration. So that's why why we had outposts in a lot of European cities.
0: Right. And, and this year, that seems particularly important because, of course, as you've mentioned in the material around the biennial, so much of the artist community from Ukraine is now dispersed around the world, in fact, and around Europe in particular.
1: Yeah, but some are still locked in Ukraine or have to stay in Ukraine. You know that male artists cannot leave the country. They have to stay in reserve for for the military service. So it's not just that there's a huge diaspora, But there is well artists and institutions in Ukraine that are acting in uh, a state of war, actually. And it's very difficult for them to act. There's been a lot of solidarity activities in the art field as well in the last two years with solidarity exhibitions. But... We thought solidarity is not a mere word. It must be something like normality. Because of the war, it eats up civil logics, I would say. The logics of war eats everything up. And so we wanted to state, well, this biennial now has been done every two years. So it will happen against the odds, And that's what we tried to make. But initially knew uh, that it would be difficult. So the final decision just was done in June. And uh, it was a bunch of European friends and uh, friendly institutions that helped us to set it up in a very short notice, I would say.
0: Indeed. So tell us about the funding then, because, of course, you know, if you're going to stage a biennial, you've got to get money. So how the hell did you do that
1: in such a short time? Well, there is some basic funding for the VCRC, the Kiev institution that is running the biennial, uh, that's coming every year from different foundations, but we have been very late. So the foundations have the regulations and they cannot just, despite of the state of exception, that we are in the, cannot make a, a specific case out of us. So we have been very late. And we are lucky that there has been always a good relation between the city of Vienna and the... Uh, Republic of Austria, and they immediately stepped in. I mean, we already had built up kind of an office that helped Ukrainian diasporic artists and the artistic community from singers to painters and villain players, 1,200 people to get jobs in their fields in Austria. So this was already funded by the Austrian ministry. And the Austrian ministry stepped in, and the city of Vienna stepped in, and a group of people that knows what it is to work in a transitory situation. So even in crisis situations, namely the transit network, which is existing since 20 years. It's a, a, a unique European network of uh, artists and uh, cultural workers initiatives. And they would have celebrated the 20th birthday. And they said, we have Spend some money for that, but you can have the money as an act of uh, being European and being Eastern European. We celebrate the birthday with you.
0: That's great. So tell me more. You mentioned about the idea of the logic of war. The title of the biennial is Against the Logic of War, but that's not a theme, is it? It's important to say you haven't organized the work around a the theme.
1: Well, the three Ukrainian uh, outposts that we are having, the Dovchenko Center in Kiev, the Alena in, in uh, ivano frankivsk and the Atelier Programme in Ushkort have said, for good reasons. But we uh, withdraw from setting a title is always something that is narrowing uh, or that is putting a perspective on something. I think that the geopolitical rupture that we're in is... A title enough, or is not a title enough, but it's a reality enough. Right. And our idea was much more to reintegrate this dispersed communities, the, the diasporic communities all over Europe, and the people still, the artists still living in Ukraine with international colleagues and international institutions. So that we would build up maybe something. For the future of not just the biennial, but for the future of a European connectivity between uh, the artistic fields, and I think this seems to work out brilliantly.
0: Uh, you mentioned the three Ukrainian manifestations of the biennial. There, one of the things that I'm really struck by reading the titles and the and the information about those sections is there's a strong element of reflective almost poetry about the way that the artists are approaching the individual displays. There's a lot of thought about the idea of uh, futures that are in suspension, for instance, the idea of futures that they were dreaming of before the war just cannot happen now. And that sort of thing. It seems to me that it's been an opportunity to reflect on what the war means beyond shelling and bombs and the destruction of cities and so on. It's about the human response to war very much.
1: For well, sure. I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's a therapeutic act, not at all. It is a very reflected act uh, because the trauma is omnipresent. And if the trauma is omnipresent, there is two ways to overpass the trauma, to get stuck into the drama or to imagine a possibility that could bridge to another kind of reflection of the situation that's happening. And that's, I think, why a lot of the works, even the works of the Ukrainian artists are not about prop or about something like I show you my trauma, but they are uh, reflecting how visual arts at all can deal with the objects around the war, with the subjects in the war, with destructions and the reconstruction. And people don't want to lose there function as artists. I mean, artists always, in all of our societies, if it's good art, it's a a third way, it's a third space uh, where things are possible and can be reflected that mere economics or mere politics would not allow. And I think Ukrainian artists brilliantly understand how to deal with that. Uh,
0: Tell us more about your discussions with the Ukrainian artists that you've been working with. Because, of course, it must be difficult. As you've explained, they're in difficult situations. So, to what extent can you have an element of normality in the arrangement of an exhibition? Discussions about design, discussions about which works are included and so on. Does there have to be an element of improvisation built in?
1: For sure, to such an artist, there must be always an element of improvisation. But, you know, a a biennial as well is something like a functional institution that creates a normality of production. And it was about this normality of production. So we have been talking about artistic production, how we could make it possible, how to visualize, uh, how to display. And all this is beyond, so to say, just mere crying into the thin air of a, a European media echo or of a European political echo. It is really creating substantial. So to say, reflections. And what we did in Vienna as well, we invited colleagues from around Europe, internationally quite renowned artists, Turner Prize winners, people that have done many biennials and documenters and so on. And most of them had experiences with uh, Ukraine. Hito Steyerl has produced her videos in Ukraine. Wolfgang Tilmos, the famous photographer, always has been sympathetic uh, with Ukraine. So was Laura Provoz and a lot of other people. I can't name them all. Right, yeah, Yeah, of course. And this was very important for us. And they establish working connections, even with Ukrainian artists. And uh, this is something that we find uh, miraculous in that short period.
0: And is it right? that Wolfgang invited a Ukrainian photographer to join him, as, if you like, in his space?
1: There will be a show in next year and Wolfgang is very much working together as is Clemens von Wedemeyer another famous German artist who always worked with Nikola Ritny. And what Clemens and Nicola did, they reminded even the West or the German-speaking West on another bird. And it was the first massacre in Butcher was not done by the Russians, it was done by the Nazis, yeah. So we in Austria and in Germany have a certain responsibility to remember. And on the other hand, it was the Ukrainian battalions that freed Austria uh, from the Nazis. So there is a long-term relation and we should reconsider as well. And we have an artist, Katarina Lisouvenko, one of the most brilliant painters from Ukraine. We could help her to find a shelter in Vienna. And she's now really reflecting on, uh, uh, let us say, the hidden treasure of robbery in uh, European museums that are still uh, left from that first situation. Or another person is really dealing with uh, anti Semitism, like Nikita Kadan. We have a mayor here in Vienna that was uh, in the 1870s still a local hero who uh, did break ground for anti-Semitism. And he was reflecting on the monument of this mayor and putting it into context to an anti-fascist Soviet monument that has now been destroyed by the Russian army again.
0: Right, that's interesting. One of the venues in Ukraine, in, in Usgorod, is, is this space called Sorry No Rooms Available. It's become a residency. And so basically artists from Ukraine have, have been effectively taking up residency there and producing work, right?
1: Artists from the war zones in the and South uh, mainly have come to the west, to Uzgorod, which is really two kilometers from the Polish border. And uh, they created this residency program. It's quite a vivid European funded residency program and they have rooms available there in an old hotel, uh, a Soviet uh, style hotel and the exhibition there is about what has been produced during these two years in the residency program. So it's reflecting directly, so to say, the means of artistic production in wartime, which is very important as well. On the other hand, the Govchenko Center in Kiev, which is the biggest Soviet film archive, that existed, yeah, and Oleksandr Dovchenko was a Ukrainian filmmaker, the famous uh, avant-garde filmmaker, Mm. they said, well, what should we reflect on? And the Dnipro River, the big river, is in the collective memory, such an important figure, but as well it is in uh, the industrial growing of the country. And now as the dams have been bombed, it is a war zone. So they are reflecting on the figure of the river Nipro, in Ukrainian and Soviet filmmaking.
0: Yes, with that very poetic title, The River Wailed Like a Wounded Beast. So it's animating the river in in that context.
1: Yeah, and the river is a hidden ghost or something like the good soul of Ukrainian identity, I would say.
0: And then, of course, there's this sort of intriguing element that you introduce into the kind of discussion around the biennial, which is this idea of looking to the future, this idea of perhaps thinking about what comes next. And it's very difficult, I imagine, for especially those artists in Ukraine to think about that now. But tell me more about that. To what extent has that been an active kind of call to action for the artists or to what extent is it sort of natural disposition of theirs to actually begin thinking what happens next?
1: Some of them are imagining dystopias, as you can imagine. But these dystopic futures are very much linked to general dystopic futures that we might face in this new geopolitical, so to say, combat that we just see involving democracies against authoritarian regimes, religious fundamentalism against libertarian atheism. And that's why these reflections are sometimes dystopic topic as well in the ecological of outcome course. of the war. Mm. And sometimes they're funny. So uh, what could happen? When? What would happen if? What should we imagine if that's a reality? And what we could do on the real basis, we found the Austrian Institute of Architects together with colleagues from around Europe and this chief city planner of Kharkiv. Already now thinking about possible futures of a sustainable, ecologically fine and socially integrative development of the city because of what we might see is that after there's a lot of money already collected for the reconstruction of Ukraine, but it might be that we are seeing much more like an Arabic or Southeast Asian type of development. And they are thinking as well, these groups in the Ukraine and in Europe about a future of the European city. And I think this is very important as Chazan and Kharkiv is a metropolitan zone. Yeah. It used to be in the center of the Soviet before the fall of the Iron Curtain. Now it's the Eastern wall of a democratic Europe. And that's why it's so important to even think about the shape of a future city there. And that's what we are doing as well every Friday here for two hours on a half a ping pong table on the Vienna side, half a ping pong table on the Kharkiv side.
0: That's great. Lastly, I just wanted to talk about the purpose of the biennial in terms of keeping Ukraine present in people's minds, because, of course, you've talked about the wider geopolitical situation. There are terrible things happening elsewhere in the world as well. To what extent is the biennial also about information, as well as showing art and keeping that community of artists showing their work?
1: It is about information. I mean, having a lot of small symposia and tours, and for instance, one of the things just happened in Warsaw, where the international museums community debated about future perspectives of museums. And uh, um, more than that, I think the symbolic of the artworks can keep that thing alive because we in Western Europe, remembering the 80s and this Western European kind of avant-garde, have still this light idea that this art there is belated. It is not at all. It is on the top. It can compete with any art in the world. So there is no need of help for the aesthetics of the community, but there is a need of help for the infrastructures and the possible survival of the communities, even if they are self-organized. You know, the war ate up all their budgets. I had a debate like with the former cultural minister a few months ago, and she said, well, I have to take care of the museums, I have to take care of the reconstruction of the bombed buildings. I don't have a penny for the independent scene, but in the last 10 years, it has been the independent scene, and it has been civil society, besides a few benevolent oligarchs that helped to showcase that but this uh, movement of civil society and of young people that kept this level alive and even in uh, Soviet times I mean it was the Ukrainian avant-garde that was very very important for the Soviet avant-garde of the 70s and 80s.
0: Well Georg thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The Kiev Biennial continues to unfold into 2024. To find out more, visit the website, 2023.kyivbiennial.org. You can read our review of the Biennial at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, a global sound art project looking at migration and Jem Perukini's Brixton mural. That's after this week's News Bulletin. First, a roundup of stories on Israel and Gaza. The International Council of Museums, or ICOM, has released its first public remarks on the conflict in Gaza. The Israeli branch of ICOM published an open letter on 22nd of October, demanding that the UNESCO-affiliated global institution actively condemn the acts of terror committed by Hamas on the 7th of October. In its statement, ICOM said that it, quote, expresses its deep concern about the current violence affecting Israeli and Palestinian civilians, and deplores the significant humanitarian consequences that the conflict has had over the past weeks, but it did not directly refer to Hamas. The absence of a reference to the Hamas atrocities has also prompted another art world row. An open letter urging a ceasefire amid the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, published in Art Forum last Thursday and signed by dozens of artists, prompted another letter in response from other members of the international art community. The signatories of the second letter, including the artists Hito Stael and Tal R, noted that there was no reference to the hostages taken by Hamas in the Art Forum letter and accused those who signed it of giving legitimacy to the abduction of civilians. Several artists have reportedly removed their signatures from the Art Forum letter, including the painter Katerina Grosser. She said she made a terrible mistake and apologized for what she called my ignorance and for not having fully understood the meaning and impact of the letter's omission. The group that originally authored the Art Forum petition clarified on Monday that they and signatories that have contacted them since the letter was published, quote, share revulsion at the horrific massacres of 1,400 people in Israel conducted by Hamas on October the 7th. Meanwhile, the effects of Israel's retaliatory attacks in Gaza on the Palestinian community and the territory's heritage are becoming clear. Two artists, Heber Zagout and Mohammed Sami Karika, have died in the escalating conflict, which the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says has now killed more than 6,500 people. And last Thursday night, just after we completed last week's podcast, the Greek Orthodox Church of St. Porphyrius in Gaza, believed to be the third oldest church in the world, was hit by Israeli missiles as hundreds of Palestinians sought shelter there. According to the Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem and Palestinian health officials, at least 18 Christian Palestinians were killed. Elsewhere, four artists invited to participate in the 18th Istanbul Biennial next year have withdrawn from the exhibition. Their departure follows a row over the appointment of Ivona Blaswick as curator of the 2024 edition by the Istanbul Foundation for Culture and the Arts. The four artists, Ates Alpa, Bengu Karadoman, Kerem Ozan Bayraktar and Yasam Sazmazer, stated that the controversy does not provide a favourable ground for art production and sharing. And the US artist Robert Irwin, one of the leading figures in the California light and space movement, has died aged 95. Arna Glimcher, the founder of the Pace Gallery, who worked with Irwin for 57 years, stated that Irwin's art and philosophy have extended my perception, shaped my taste and made me realise what art could be. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This November, the 20th, 21st century art auctions in New York spotlight masterpieces in conversation, from the work of Claude Monet and Joan Mitchell to Pablo Picasso and Francis Bacon. These iconic works took their place in art history and continue to speak to audiences and each other today. Preview the art at the public exhibition at Christie's Rockefeller Center galleries through the 11th of November and browse the sales online at Christie's.com. Welcome back. <laughs> That is the sound of the Crew of Boo Halloween Parade in New Orleans, gathered by Alex Clifford, just one of thousands of contributions to the project Cities and Memory, which hosts both field recordings recorded in locations around the world and remixes by sound artists and musicians that reimagine those recordings. Last month, Cities and Memory joined the University of Oxford's Centre on Migration, Policy and Society, or Compass, in launching Migration Sounds, an attempt to represent the experiences of people on the move, Migration and settling. Until the end of this year, they're inviting people from across the world to contribute audio that they've gathered wherever they are. Of course, it's a perennially relevant subject, never more so than now, as more than a million people have been displaced in the tragedy unfolding in Gaza. It's also a topic that's often distorted and dehumanised in media reporting and political debate. So what are the impetus for and aims of the project? I spoke to the founder of Citizen Memory, Stuart Folkes. Stuart before we start talking about migration sounds itself can we just talk a bit about Cities and Memories it's been around since 2015 and tell us more about it.
2: Uh, Yeah so Cities and Memory I guess is one of the biggest sound projects in the world at this point started off with me just recording one sound under a bridge near my house in Oxford and as Expanded to cover getting on for 120 countries now there's about 6,000 or so sounds in the project and there's about 1,500 artists that have got involved and you can define it by I guess the tagline which is remixing the world one sound at a time so effectively we've got a global sound map and in every location you'll find two sounds so the first one is the sort of documentary real field recording of what that place actually sounds like whether it's the sound of chiming bells or street traffic or crashing waves whatever it might be and the second sound is a kind of reimagined composition that an artist has developed using the original recording so you can navigate the world either by the actual sounds of the world or by these reimagined compositions which is like a sort of collective reimagining of the sounds of the world by um, thousands of artists Right,
0: and and when you say artist, it can mean anything from a, an electronica or techno artist to a sound artist who would want to display their work in galleries.
2: Yep, there's absolutely everything you can imagine in terms of sonic approaches on the site. So yeah, you've got you know ambient, electronic. You've got full band compositions. You've got uh, vocal songs. I think there's even one on there where someone has created a reimagined sound out of the TripAdvisor reviews of the location in question, where they've effectively right. done the reimagined motion by just reading out other people's reviews of the location, which is always really a, a really interesting one.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a conceptual art project in its own right. Tell us more about why you wanted to do this project. What was it that you wanted to achieve by recording
2: the world in such depth? Well, I think the goals of the project have sort of changed over time I guess I mean originally for me I mean I come from a background of recording sound but from the perspective of music so I've done it with that kind of John Cage sense of all sound is music um, anything is potentially source materials to be manipulated so I come at it not from the technically perfect field recording preservation documentary side of the world but more from the all sound as a possibility and all sound leads you in an interesting creative direction side of things I've always done field recording from that perspective and I was interested in how do you present that to the world and do it in a way that's slightly different from all of the other kind of sound maps and sound projects that are out there so originally it was an outlet really for me to explore how to use sound in a creative way but it's kind of developed layers of meaning over the course of several years so the first of those meanings would be around a sort of a documentary element it's been going since 2015 so a lot of the sounds now may have changed a lot of the places may have changed so there is this documentary element that comes with a level of history And for example, when we did a project around the sounds of COVID-19, that became a really important, almost historical document of the way in which the sounds of the world were changing at a particular time. So you've got that. And then two to three times a year, we do a different project where we explore a different aspect of sound, or we use sound to explore a different question or a different idea in great depth. And so each of those projects, in its own right, answers a different question and uses sound to take a different approach. And So for example... Earlier this year, we did a project called Polar Sounds, which was working with some scientific institutes in Germany around the sounds of the Arctic and the Antarctic. And what they wanted to do there was to bring the world of kind of quite cold scientific sonic data, bring it to a wider, more populist audience beyond the world of kind of research papers and white papers. And they wanted to basically use Cities and Memories artists to create this kind of tapestry of sounds and songs built from the sounds of polar life. And that achieved that goal perfectly. So there are various different ways into it, depending on what the kind of the project in question is, I guess.
0: And I think migration sounds this recently launched project. It sounds exactly like that in the sense of broadening the rhetoric, if you like, or the kind of narrative, or or even just the textures, if you like, of a much debated topic and a topic that tends to be quite reductive in the way it's discussed in public life.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I think there have become many quite fixed and quite static ways of looking at the migration conversation, particularly in the media. I think, you know, obviously it's extremely divisive. There are certain kind of tropes that come in around uh, the idea of migration. And this project is about, well, how can we look at the whole conversation a little bit differently? How can we even question what migration actually is and what are the positives of it you know and what does it mean to be an actual human being an actual person who is migrating who is living in a place that's not their original home who has potentially gone back home from a place what does it actually mean in a human sense and and how can we use sound to explore some of those questions and maybe help to change the conversation a little bit
0: And that that documentary impulse that you were discussing earlier and, and the idea of a kind of historical document, it seems to me that at the moment, the idea of sound data, which tells the story of migration, is terrifically important historically, because apart from anything else... Even the way that images of migration are presented is quite coded in the media. Whereas this, you're opening it up to everyone to record this data so that it can be extremely diverse in terms of the sounds. And, and in fact, a way of interpreting migration that it seems to me is completely different from the way that many of us ever have.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it's much easier to record sound than it is to record video. It's a very accessible format. You can record really high quality sound, you know, just on, on an iPhone using voice notes now. So it's potentially the kind of problem project that you know an enormous amount of people can get involved with so that hopefully the barrier to entry is not exclusive you know with this project we're not talking about you need to be a migrating field recorder to owns a three thousand pound nagra tape recorder in order to take part in this it's like basically anyone with a phone can be part of this but i think we also want to move away from the idea of migration is just people on boats or is just people crossing borders is just people in transit Migration is about everyday life. It's often about very, very mundane things. It's about how does the place that you're living in now sound different to the places that you're used to or the places that you've come from? How does that make you feel? Do you feel welcomed? Do you feel alienated? You know, what what are the kind of feelings that come up that tell the story of a journey towards a new home or tell the story of a new life beginning?
0: And of course, the idea behind recording cities or recording space is that it's a kind of sensation of that environment. It is a sense. And it's a sense that sometimes is divorced from the narratives that are told about these kind of issues.
2: Yeah. And, you know, sound is the sense that um, we're all aware of first. You know, we, we can all hear before we can see. We can all hear before we're born. It is something that is very, very close to our daily lives. And if you think about the difference between that and, and visuals, especially in today's visually dominated culture, if I ask you, for example, what does Paris look like, you will say to me without doubt something like, yeah, it's the Eiffel Tower or it's the River Seine or it's whatever it might be. If I ask you, conversely, what does Paris sound like, you may come back to me and say, well, it's the, it's the closing doors in the metro. It's the sound of the, the bustling streets. It's musicians in Montmartre. It's whatever it might be. So discussing sound as it relates to a place often ends up being much closer to our daily life and the way in which we live than thinking about visuals.
0: Of course, you're working with Compass, which is a department within Oxford University. So there is an academic impulse as well as a kind of just data gathering process here.
2: Yeah. And in fact, it's it's Compass that got in touch with City's Memory in, in the first instance with this idea of, well, actually, you know, we've... We've seen some of the the work that you've done in other projects, using sound to open up conversations in other areas. Is that something that you'd be potentially interested in, in working with us on around migration? And I think there's, there's a couple of things around that. You know, I think from our side, it helps to give the project a great deal of legitimacy, that we're working with an extremely credible organisation that is part of the conversation around the migration debate and really knows the policy issues and all that kind of stuff. But equally... Because they have a whole lot of networks, they have a lot of field researchers, a lot of field workers, a lot of links with organizations around the world. And hopefully that's going to be able to help us to garner and find some really interesting sounds and more importantly, some really interesting stories to go along with it as well. So this is not just about a public open call done through our channel. It's also about what can Compass kind of help to gather from from their networks too.
0: I was going to ask that, actually, about to what extent is there actual outreach to refugee communities, for instance? Is anybody talking to the million people who are displaced in Gaza right now about this?
2: There's a lot of outreach going on. It's all happening through Compass and through their networks across the university and beyond. So I know that they're having a lot of conversations. And, you know, this call is going to be running until at least the end of 2023, just in terms of gathering the field recordings, because we know we need a little bit longer on this one to lay the groundwork, to make the connections, to make the recordings, and to get those back in to make this project as rich and as diverse and as interesting as it needs to be and as it can be you know often with other projects if i'm doing something like for example sounding nature which was our project about exploring the sounds of the natural world that's really easy i can put that out to the field recording networks to so cities his memory there are tons of nature recorders out there they can send me fantastic recordings of howler monkeys uh, in costa rica or like the sounds of Hooper Swans in Canada. I can get that really quickly, but this is something that's going to require a lot more thought and a lot more kind of groundwork to get going, I think.
0: Obviously, you talked about the way that the sound recordings appear on the Cities and Memory site, but are there broader goals in terms of how this data is going to be used in terms of do Compass want to use it in terms of their work, in terms of forming policies, advising on policies and so on? Or you know, are there sort of specific goals which are inside?
2: Well, if there's one thing I've learned from the Cities of Memory projects is that there's always a kind of surprise involved in terms of depending on what comes back from the projects, what sounds you get in, how they end up being used. You know, When I did the COVID-19 project, that was an impulse from my side to just record the ways in which the sounds of the world were changing because everyone was talking about well, the world's getting quieter, traffic's died down, I could hear more nature. It's like, we have to capture this and we have to record it. I wouldn't have expected at that point that project would be archived by the British Library for posterity because it became an important historical document. So I couldn't have seen that outcome happening at the beginning of the project. And I feel like with migration sounds, there may be something that happens once we release the project to the world. It may start to you know inform some of those conversations a little bit more. And I think part of that is going to be it's not just about the sounds, it's going to be about the stories that are behind it. Because I think a lot of the sounds that come through in the project, there'll be some sounds that are particularly indicative of what you classically think of as a migration. But I would think the majority of the sounds are likely to be quite down to earth, quite mundane. Literally, the sounds of people doing washing up, you know, the sounds of people going and doing the shopping. But it's the story behind that, you know, where am I? Where am I from? Where have I moved to? How do I feel? you know, what's unfolding in my life. I think that's the real gold in this project.
0: And lastly, just tell us how people can contribute.
2: So if you head to citiesinmemory.com slash migration, you can contribute a sound there. You'll find all the links, all the information in terms of, contributing a sound and and i would just say that this is not just about the sounds of people literally traveling to places this can be about you know if you have moved to a new country if you're a second generation immigrant if you've just returned home like any of those things you are the sonic reflection on the way that you're living is is completely valid and we would love to hear that in the project
0: okay well Stuart, thank you so much for joining us thank you A reminder of that website, citiesandmemory.com slash migration. You can find out more about Compass's work at compass. That's with one s dot ox dot uk. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Next Thursday, Art on the Underground, the body that commissions contemporary art for London's Tube Network, unveils the latest mural to decorate the station in Brixton in South London. The work Rebirth of a Nation is by the Ethiopian-Italian artist Jem Peruchini. I spoke to Jessica Vaughan, Senior Curator at Art on the Underground, about the mural. Jessica, before we talk about the work, tell us a bit more about Jem Peruchini.
3: Jen is a relatively young artist. He was born in Ethiopia, but he's been based in Italy since very early childhood. And you can see there's a huge influence of Italian art history on his work. He's a painter, but he does make sculptures, I would say.
0: Beautiful sculptures, actually. Extraordinary things.
3: Incredible sculptures, yeah, which also I think are very evocative of kind of early Renaissance work, which I think his painting practices very much too. And this is going to be his first big commission in the UK. He's worked quite a lot in Italy, but we're really excited to do something with him in public space in London. I think it's going to be very popular. From the initial response we've had to the artwork so far, I'm very excited to see it nine metres wide at Brixton Station.
0: The very fact that you've talked about early Renaissance and Renaissance influences, by engaging in that mural tradition... That sets up a really interesting correspondence, doesn't it? Because, of course, he's inevitably engaging with the fresco tradition.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We've invited him to do the commission as part of the Brixton mural programme, which is in a very basic sense, asking artists to respond to what I kind of understand as the kind of original public artwork painting on the surface of a building. And some artists have engaged with Mexican muralism. Some have very much directly engaged with the murals that were painted in and around Lambeth in the 80s. But I think Jem is going one step further back and is engaging with frescoes and early Renaissance murals, which, you know, were painting directly with plaster onto the surfaces of buildings, often religious ones. And I think even in his painting style, when you get up close, it's almost like pointillism. But it really reminds me actually more of the kind of surfaces of a mural chipped away over years, it kind of becomes like an artifact kind of telling you about the place in which it was created. So I think it's another very interesting layer of context and history to place within this location in Brixton.
0: And tell us more about the iconography that we're looking at, which does relate, I think, very closely to some of those early Renaissance paintings. I'm thinking particularly Piero, the kind of staffs or spears that are held by the male figures, for instance. And then you have this orb, which is, which of course is a kind of classic symbol of holiness in Renaissance and medieval work. So tell us more about that. They seem very deliberate references.
3: Yeah, I think they are very deliberate references. And like you say, there seems to be very distinctive references to particular artists. And for me, it's also artists like Uccello or Fra Angelico. What we're looking at in the mural he's created for us is we're kind of stepping into almost like a portal of slightly irregular perspective with a kind of an orange rising sun behind these two female figures so in the composition that he's created for his work which I should say is called Rebirth of a Nation it's an allegorical vision in which the past who is embodied by a female figure meets the future who is her mirror image so it's two female figures at the front and they're flanked either side by two men holding spears and they're sitting in this very otherworldly environment which has got a ledge kind of at the front of it which makes it very flat and the perspective is not quite correct and as you said one is holding an orb and they have this kind of rising orange sun behind them which bathes the whole image in this kind of very warm hue the whole mural has this very detailed really patterned texture and all of the figures are wearing these different very colorful clothes and they're kind of quite evocative of african wax fabric but also actually when i first met jen I was intrigued if he'd ever come across the moquette fabrics on the tube because actually, funnily enough, it's not at all deliberate or (laughs) relevant, but they really remind me of that kind of really heavily detailed fabric. But yeah, no, they're
0: not inspired by that. And of course, that African wax cloth has enormously complex history. Much of it was shipped from Europe to Africa and then became part of the kind of diasporic identity and so on. To what extent is Jem engaged in that history? Because I know, of course, there's a a strong theme in this work about migration, but is the use of these patterns a kind of reference to it too?
3: That is not explicitly a reference. That's something that Jem does throughout all of his works. And it's something we've discussed. But I think he's really interested in narratives. And I think the narrative that really comes across, particularly in this work, is of the ivory bangle lady. So this work is inspired by the story of the ivory bangle lady, which was the name given to the occupant of a grave that was found in York, which was dated to the 4th century. And she was of North African origin. And she was found with objects which showed that she had a very high social status and was one of the wealthiest inhabitants of the region, one of which was an ivory bangle. And so this archaeological find, along with others, supports the theory that African individuals had a place in the upper echelons of Roman society. I think Gem's work is political and is dealing with these complex ideas of nationality. I think certainly as an artist who was born in Ethiopia, but who grew up and is Italian, there is these kind of ideas of how archetypes are created and how Western art history prefaces certain narratives over others. So I think certainly you can see that within the way and the Style that Jem is using and invoking, I think it's very deliberate, versus the kind of content and the history that he's very much specifically talking about here, which feels very relevant and potent for Brixton. And, you know, that was the invite to make a work for Brixton, which is such a centre of black British history. So I think this work in particular really challenges the notions that black British history stretches no further back than the 20th century. And this reference directly to the ivory bangle lady supports the notion that it absolutely goes much further back than that.
0: That's right. It taps into recent scholarship, doesn't it? In fact, it's become popular scholarship in the sense that it's become part of like David Oleshoge's television programming around early black Britons who, for instance, were part of the Roman nation, as it were, in Britain. And I guess that taps, therefore, into this title, Rebirth of a Nation. That's one form of rebirth that's happening here. The identity of black Britons stretching back 1600 years or so
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think there's something very um, celebratory about his title. And I think there's a real grandeur in Jem's work. And it's kind of really an elevation of these histories and a celebration. And I think exactly as you're saying, it's putting this front and centre and really celebrating this history, which hasn't had its sufficient airtime in these kind of public spaces.
0: Tell us more about the intriguing sort of hints at extra figures at the edges of the composition, which I'm, I'm struck by. You have these very clear four sort of central figures, but just at the edges, there are two more. Tell us more about what Jem's intention there was.
3: I mean, I'm putting my understanding onto it, but his work often has these kind of portals and these spaces that we walk within, these different spaces which do seem very timeless. And for me, those figures on the side, that I've seen him use in other larger compositions which are group compositions are these kind of actions going off to the side these places elsewhere that we're not privy to I mean also it's another kind of reference to art history a later art history a kind of post-impressionist art history where the photograph was being used and painters were starting to crop people off the sides of paintings to show their idea and their knowledge about reproduction Jem hasn't said that but that would be my interpretation of it
0: That's very interesting. Tell us about the technical work that's gone into the mural, because of course, as you say, Jem has a very particular way of applying paint to canvas, but he's working in very, very different language of making here because murals are a very different category, very different feel. So has he been able to translate more or less exactly what he's done on canvas or does it feel like a different kind of making that we're looking at?
3: What we actually do, I know that I'm saying that it's the Brixton Mural Programme, but what we have to do is we work with painters and they they paint an image at a particular ratio, at a scale. So he's painted it at about two metres wide and then we have a very high-resolution image and then we blow it up and we install it in vinyl. So, yes, he's worked in the way that he would normally and he's worked at that kind of scale previously, but building up these layers of painting. But what has been really amazing to see is when we've had the samples of the vinyl increasing their size by that much does something quite different to the painted surface. It's quite amazing to see his level of detail kind of zoomed in times four so you can really get a sense of all of these kind of they're almost like plates of colour kind of stacked up on each other it's really rich and really detailed and I think although the work at Brixton is viewed from a slight distance because it's over the entrance of the station so you're on the stairs I think you will really see this painted texture which is really the only opportunity on the tube network that we have to have this kind of really captive audience in front of a work it's one of the reasons why we are doing this program at this Kind of location because you have people who have the opportunity to actually stand back and stare at a work. So I do think there's quite an interesting correlation with exactly that, you know, thinking of where we would see murals in public space, and being able to step back and have a look at the real detail in them. And also in in the way that we work, you have these kind of people who will see the work again and again, every day for a year, people who live and work around the station will get to look at that work every single day as they enter into the station. And I think something like Gem's work, is so led and so detailed and there'll be something for people to discover over and over again.
0: You mentioned earlier on that of course this relates particularly to a kind of European tradition but of Mm. course Brixton has this extraordinary rich tradition of mural making which you've tapped into over many years now. To what extent are you encouraging this as a sort of starting point for people to investigate that history should they want to?
3: I mean, I think the premise of the programme as a jumping off point from these local murals that were created in the 70s and 80s can be as kind of tight for an artist or as open and loose for an artist. And I would say the same for the viewers. I think the interesting thing about putting artworks like this, you know, really critically engaged artworks in the public realm is that either they can be for the audience to simply enjoy and change how they feel about going on their daily commute, going to work, whatever, or they can be a way to access a whole different part of history and ideas that they might not be familiar with. And that's what I think is really exciting about putting artwork like that in such a public space. So we always provide, you know, like you would in a gallery, there's a leaflet that's available for free in the station, which taps into all of these histories that you and I have been talking about. But for me, it's absolutely fine whether someone looks at it and, you know, has a momentary recognition of enjoyment can see themselves in an image, enjoys the richly detailed colours, or thinks, I've never seen artwork like this in a public space. Like, what is it? Where is it from? What's this artist trying to say to me? I think all of those responses are incredibly valid. So five million people travel on the tube each day. So even if you get 1% of that, you have got a really important amount of people engaging in contemporary art. So I think even if that small percentage of people who are engaging get something from it, then I think the work's done something important.
0: And of course, one of the great freedoms that this kind of work has compared to work in a museum is that in being in a public place for a great length of time, it gets revisited and revisited by some people. It becomes part of the the furniture of their journey to work or the way that they experience journeys across London every single time they do it. And I think that's a very special connection between a community and an artwork, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's one of the most important and interesting things that we do. Sometimes people will see a work once if they're visiting London, and that's great. But actually, it's about this relationship that people build up with the works. And I know people who live and work around Brixton, and the day after a new work goes up, and they're up for about a year, they'll say, no, where's that last one gone? Or, oh, I really love this new one. And it's not just the people who are traveling through the station. It's also the people who work in the station. You know, We have a really strong relationship with the operational staff who work in various stations. And you really get to talk to them a lot about how they feel about the work that we're presenting. And I think that's another very interesting relationship that is really valuable but yeah i think that Jem's work will be one that evolves and it's a really complex work and i think Jem is a really interesting complicated young painter who's going to go on to do incredible things and i think this work is a very generous work for brixton so i'm excited to see the initial response but i'm also excited to hear about the responses in six months time and in a year's time
0: well jessica thank you so much for joining us thank you Jen Perrochini's Rebirth of a Nation is revealed at Brixton Underground Station next Thursday the 2nd of November And that's it for this episode you can find us on X formerly known as Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Threads The Week in Art is produced by Julia Michalska, Alexander Morrison and David Clack and David's also the editor and sound designer Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests Georg, Stuart and Jessica Thank you for listening We'll see you next week Bye for now